0: Get your Bibles with you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 16. We're going to be in Acts 16. We're going to look at verses 16 to 40 to the end of the chapter. Acts 16, verses 16 to 40. Chapter 16, starting in verse 16, please hear this public reading of God's Word. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, "'Do not harm yourself, for we are all here.' And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, "'Sirs, what must I do to be saved?' And they said, "'Believe in the Lord Jesus.'" And you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come to a wonderful passage of Scripture today, probably a fairly familiar passage, especially with the Philippian jailer in this section. Uh, but Father, I pray that uh, we would, you would just open our eyes to behold wondrous things from perhaps a familiar passage and Father, I pray for the Christians in this room as we consider some surprising conversions today. I pray that we would be freshly amazed at our own conversion, that we would be freshly filled with joy as we consider uh, saving faith and the joy that it brings in our passage. And Father, as we consider Paul and Silas, how they remain content in immense suffering, Father, I pray we would be inspired by their example and that we too would learn the secret of Christian Contentment that we would be making regular progress in this area of Christian contentment. And Father, I pray that we would see the Apostle Paul's love for the Philippian church and that we too would be strengthened and that we would increase our love for the local church. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we get to look at some surprising conversions today in Acts 16. Really, this most of Acts 16 is filled with surprising conversions conversions. Mark dealt with one or actually multiple conversions last Sunday with Lydia. We saw Lydia being converted, and it says in Acts 16, verse 14, into verse 14, said the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So there's a surprising conversion. And then verse 15 of 16 says, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, right there. So we think that her whole household became believers as well. So there were surprising conversions right there, but we're going to continue with some more surprising conversions in our passage, with the slave girl, and then we're going to see the Philippian jailer and his family. What we're going to see is we're going to see the great diversity of people impacted by the gospel. We see the triumphant power of the gospel on display in Acts 16. Four points of emphasis today that we will look at. Number one, we're going to look at the surprising conversion of the slave girl, the surprising conversion of the slave girl. Number two, we're going to look at contentment in suffering, contentment in suffering. We're going to look at the suffering aspect first, and then we're going to look at how they remain content in immense suffering. Point number three is going to be the surprising conversions of the Philippian jailer and his family. The surprising conversions of the Philippian jailer and his family. And then point number four is going to be the the love the Apostle Paul has for the Philippian church, the love the Apostle Paul has for the Philippian church. But point number one, the surprising conversion of the slave girl. Verse 16 of Acts 16, as we were going to the place of prayer… We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So it's Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke are on their way to this place of prayer, and they're met by this slave girl who is demon-possessed. And it says there at the end of 16, and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Very important piece there. She brings much gain to her owners by telling fortunes. Very important piece. Verse 17, she followed Paul. And us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. What she is saying here is true. This is true, what she is saying. They are uh, servants of the Most High God. They are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. This is true. This should remind us of Jesus' ministry, various times where Jesus would encounter a demon possessed person, you remember, they would say to Jesus something like, what have you to do with us? Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, something like that. They would say truth about Jesus. Well, here in this case, they are speaking truth. The demon-possessed girl is speaking truth about them. But we need to remember that these words are coming from the powers of darkness. These words are coming from the powers of darkness, and these words are seeking to be disruptive to Paul and Silas' ministry seeking to be a disruption to Paul and Silas's ministry, ultimately seeking to destroy the gospel ministry of Paul and Silas. That's what she is trying to do. Verse 18, And this she kept doing for many years. Days. So this is not just a one-time deal. No, she's following them and repeatedly crying out over and over and over in this disruptive way. I think one pastor said you wouldn't want her to be your PR person, your public relations person for your ministry. No way. I mean, she would be very disturbing what she would be doing, very loud, and she's doing this over and over and over again. Middle of 18, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. Kevin Young said, I know that Paul had a very legitimate reason to be annoyed, and we oftentimes don't, but I do take some comfort in this fact that the great apostle Paul had moments of being greatly annoyed. Paul became greatly annoyed. He got fed up with this shouting, with this disruptive uh, slave girl, and he turns to her and says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to the, to the demon inside to come out of her, and it comes out that very hour. The demon leaves her. By the power of Christ, her life is radically transformed by the power of Christ. Now, I know there's no record in our text that she became a Christian, but certainly I would think that she, she did. Now, multiple commentators point this out. Since this story is told between Lydia and her family becoming Christians, the Philippian jailer and his family becoming Christians, we are sort of meant to infer from Luke that she too received Christ. Certainly, this is a powerful display of the gospel. The demon leaves her. Now, she's in her right mind, but we assume that she receives Christ. She is wonderfully converted, we assume. So, this is a surprising conversion, no doubt about it. Now, think about the contrast. Think about Lydia. Lydia had status. Lydia had a home. Lydia had influence. Lydia had wealth. And this slave girl has none of what… Uh, Lydia had. One pastor said there was no lower place in society than to be a female slave. She was on the bottom rung of society next to Lydia, and yet both wonderfully transformed by the power of the gospel. You see the diversity of people changed by the gospel. I, I like to picture this little house church gathering there at Lydia's house. You have Lydia, the one with status and wealth, sitting there with her family. And you have the slave girl perhaps sitting right next to Lydia. And there they are, united at the deepest possible level, yet so different externally, and yet united, become sisters in Christ and singing praises to God together. Verse 19, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So the spirit leaves her and then the means of making money leave these guys, the owners. The means of making money leave. Now, if they really cared about this girl, they would have rejoiced right here that she had been set free from this demon. They would have rejoiced along with Paul and Silas, but they do not rejoice. This shows that all they cared about from her was making money off her and now they're furious because they've lost their means of making money. So they are absolutely furious with Paul and Silas. And now we're getting into our second point of contentment and suffering, and we're going to see this suffering part, immense suffering. Verse 20, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now notice, the real reason why they are upset is financial, it's economic. They've lost their means of making money, and they're furious about that. But do they say anything about their loss of making money here in their charges against them? They don't say a word about that. They're clever. So they come up with something that they know is going to incite the magistrates and the rulers and the crowd against them. Barring this from John Stott, they appeal to the latent anti-Semitism of the people. They said, these men are Jews, is what they say. And then they appeal to the racial pride of the people, us Romans, to accept or practice Again, verse 20, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs. that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And then they do that to ignite the flames of bigotry against them. So they come up with something that's not the real reason. Remember, all they did was deliver this one girl from one demon. That's all they had done. And yet they come, these guys come up with this clever answer or this clever uh, uh, charge against them in order to incite the crowd, and it works. Look at verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So this is the suffering. This is immense suffering. I don't even know if we can wrap our brains around this suffering that they endured. They are stripped of their clothing. They are victims of mob violence. They're stripped of their clothing and they are beaten with rods. I mean, we can't even fathom this, I don't think. There was no limit on, in terms of how many times you could be hit with rods. We have no idea how many times, but many, many times they are beaten with bare skin. They're beaten with these rods, a severe beating. And then they're taken to this first century prison. And notice what they tell the jailer at the end of verse 23, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And then look what the jailer does. Having received this order to keep them safely, he puts them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. He seems to go overboard here. It's as if he, he, says, he gets this order, okay, I'll keep them safely. Okay, I can't wait to do what I'm going to do to them. I'm going to take them to the inner prison. I'm going to fasten their feet in the stocks. This likely would have caused cramping with their feet in an uncomfortable position. They are battered and bloodied and bruised. I mean, black eyes puffy lips, their back would have been lacerated, dried up blood, they perhaps were limping as they came into this prison, so a severe beating, and then they are thrown into a first century prison. This is not like a, a stay at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, no, this is a first century prison, this would have been a filthy place to be. Just imagine this prison for, for a second, people said there would have been lice and rats and disease infested, first century prison, the other prisoners would have been using filthy language no doubt, and there would have been a filthy smell in the air just a horrible place to spend the night. They would have had throbbing pain with no Tylenol, no Advil, nothing to help ease the pain. Throbbing pain, uncomfortable position, horrible prison. That's their condition. I mean, try to put ourselves in their shoes just for a minute. I know it's almost impossible to imagine this, the shame of being stripped of your clothing, the shame of being beaten publicly, and then in that first century prison with a horrible place to spend the night. How would we have responded had we been tied into the stocks in this first century prison? Had somebody tuned in and listened to what we would have said, what would they have heard from us? Would they have heard us wallowing in self-pity? Would we have been filled with complaints and irritability? Is that what they would have heard from us? But as we listen in to Paul and Silas at midnight, we see contentment in suffering. Here's the contentment, verse 25, this glorious verse. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. As we listen in at midnight, we don't hear any groaning from Paul and Silas. We hear no complaining, no irritability. We hear praying and singing hymns to God. This is contentment and suffering. This is one of the most beautiful displays of Christian contentment in all of church history, recorded for us beautifully in Acts chapter 16. You remember Paul would write to the Philippian church in Philippians 4, verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. We looked at this almost a year ago about learning the secret of Christian contentment or the rare jewel of Christian contentment in Philippians 4. But you remember Paul He learned the secret of Christian contentment. It wasn't like he became a Christian and then immediately arrived at Christian contentment. No, he realized, this is an area in my life that I needed to make progress in. I need to grow in this area of Christian contentment. And Paul, over time, learned the secret of Christian contentment, certainly by Acts 16. He has learned the secret of Christian contentment. So I would just ask this question, how are we doing in our pursuit of Christian contentment? Now, if you remember, our contentment is not based... On our circumstances, how could it be? If Paul's contentment was based on his circumstances, right here in Acts 16, his contentment would have dried up. But our contentment is not based on our circumstances. Our contentment is based on the Lord and on the promises of God. Paul and Silas know that this is a light and momentary affliction. is preparing for them an eternal weight of glory. They, they know that this is coming filtered through God's sovereign and wise fatherly care of their lives. And ultimately, we can learn contentment through Christ. We lean into Christ and His enabling grace to learn contentment. So I hope that we're making progress in this area of Christian contentment. Now, notice again, let me read verse 25 again. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns, notice hymns, plural, to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. It's not like they sang one song and they decided to go to bed. No, they're singing and singing and singing. They're singing continually throughout the night." So, four points of application that we can consider on this verse. Number one, when we remain content in suffering, it gives us a wonderful platform for evangelism. When we remain content in suffering, it gives us a wonderful platform for evangelism. We'll see it played out in our text beautifully how that happens. But again, picture this prison And think about when new prisoners would be added to this prison, what would typically happen? So you're a prisoner, you're you're waiting there, and typically when a new prisoner would be added, you would see them come in, dragging, being dragged, kicking, screaming, cursing, swearing, spitting, yelling, complaining, and they would be added to the midst. That's what they are used to when new prisoners are being added. And all of a sudden, here comes Acts 16. Here comes Paul and Silas. They see them. They are battered and bruised. Oh, man, those guys have been beaten badly. They are limping in. Oh, man, they're going into the inner prison. Oh, they're getting into the stocks. I can't wait to hear what we're going to hear from them tonight. And then midnight rolls around, and they hear something strange. They hear praying from the inner prison. They can't believe it. And then they, they hear a song being sung, and then another song, and another song. And they are stunned to silence. It says... The end of verse 25, and the prisoners were listening to them. You better believe the prisoners were all ears. They've never seen anything like this. And as the silence fell over the prison, they began to learn something about God as they sang. They began to learn maybe about salvation. They're maybe singing for the joy of their salvation. They're hearing about the person and work of Jesus. They sit in stunned silence learning about God and of salvation. So when we remain content in suffering, it's going to give us a wonderful platform for evangelism. You see, when we tell people that we are Christians, I think they're going to begin to look at our lives more closely. But when we begin to go through suffering and they know that we're Christians, they will really zoom in and focus in on us and they're going to watch and see how are we going to respond when we go through suffering. And when we remain content in suffering, they will then ask us for the reason for the hope that is in us. They're going to say, how are you so hopeful during this immense suffering? What do you have that I don't have? So when we remain content, it will give us a wonderful platform for evangelism. Application point number two, praising God should never be out of season. Praising God should never be out of season. Now, I want to be clear that it doesn't mean that we don't grieve. Yes, we grieve, and we can grieve deeply and most sorely in our life. So it doesn't mean that we don't grieve. We do grieve, but if we're walking through some kind of suffering and we can't praise God, something is is wrong with us. One pastor told this story about a, a family at his church that their two-year-old son, I guess, went underwater at a lake, and they rushed him out of the water, and they tried to revive him. and Or it could have been a pool, I can't remember. And then they raced him to the ER, and they're trying to revive him desperately in the ER. And this pastor raced to the hospital, and he got into the hospital room, and soon after he got there, they pronounced this two-year-old boy dead in the room. And he said, the mom turned to him and said, Can we sing the doxology? And there they sat in the ER, and they were saying, praise God from whom all blessings flow. He said he felt like he was on holy ground. He felt like he didn't deserve to be there. I am sure that mother grieved deeply, but she was still able to praise God. We should be able to praise God no matter what we're walking through. Praising God should never be out of season. Number three, this is from Kevin DeYoung. He said, do we have songs in our hearts to sing, meaning if we were all put in prison tonight... We don't have our phones. Would we have some hymns that we knew that we could sing by heart tonight? And then he said this: Would our children be able to have songs to sing? Are we teaching our children hymns and songs for them to learn and memorize? John and Callie Vandalin, who played today, she has a wonderful voice and getting to know them some as new members. I was talking to John about my text a few weeks ago. And he said that every night that they sing with their kids various songs, and one of the songs they sing is, Jesus Loves Me. And he said that one day Jane, their daughter who's three, was running around the yard and she was bellowing it "How Jesus loves me, this I know, in the yard. Why? Because songs and a tune have a way to stick into children's minds. It's easy for them to remember. And so often these hymns will never be forgotten. Tom Schreiner says words of songs can strengthen and encourage us. It's a great thing to do for devotions. It's to meditate on great hymns and songs. They communicate the gospel so powerfully. Songs can get truth into our hearts. They can comfort and strengthen us greatly, especially when we are walking through suffering. And he said when he lost his mother, he said one of the things that helped him the most was singing hymns. My dad has been in pastoral ministry, was in pastoral ministry for almost 40 years, and in his words, he uh, saw a lot of people die. He, he walked with a lot of people through the dying process. He would go to hospital beds and walk saints through their final moments on earth, and he's got lots of stories. You can talk to him about it, but one story he told in his, one of his sermons was about a couple who came to Faith Presbyterian Church after they had retired. The husband had been, I think, an elder in the PCA Church for 40 years, and they retired. They came to Athens. They joined Faith Pres, and soon after they came here, I think, their health declined, and they went to a, a retirement home. And ultimately, the husband's health declined first, and he went to glory first, and then the wife was left. And she got Alzheimer's disease and really got worse and worse. And at the very end, towards the end of her life, my dad would go to her retirement home and go to her bedside. He would take his Bible with him and he would take his hymn book and he would sit by her bed and he would read the Word of God and he would sing... And at the very end, when her mind was nearly wasted away and gone, my dad would sing a hymn, and she would turn, and in her own way she would begin to hum the tune of the hymn because the song had so deeply been inside of her. Even with Alzheimer's, she had the hymn still ingrained in her. And before she got really bad, she had told my dad that one of her favorite times, I think her favorite time in that nursing home had been when some sisters in Christ from the church had come with hymn books, and they had spent the afternoon singing praises to God. So do we have songs to sing, and do our children have songs to sing? Application point number four, does our family or do those around us that we interact with regularly in the midst of daily life, do they feel a joy that radiates from us in Christ? Do they, do they sense a, a joy in Christ from us that radiates from us? Do those around us see that? You see, it didn't matter how many times you beat the Apostle Paul or Silas with a rod. You were not going to steal the Apostle Paul's joy in Christ. You were not going to rob the Apostle Paul of his joy in Christ. It didn't matter. He had this deep and abiding joy in Jesus. Do we have a deep and abiding joy in Jesus that's almost tangible to people around us? One pastor who grew up in a pastor's home, he said that he hardly ever needed an alarm clock to wake up in the morning because he said he would wake up to his father singing hymns in the shower down the hall because his father had a deep joy in Jesus. Remember, Paul would write to this Philippian church, in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul had learned to rejoice in the Lord always. So do those around us, Feel a joy that radiates from us in Christ. Verse 26, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. One one guy said that this was the most astonishing, miraculous, surgical strike earthquake. I mean, the foundation shake, the the doors open, bonds unfastened, and yet nobody is hurt in this earthquake. A miraculous earthquake takes place. Verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Why is this Philippian jailer about to take his own life? Well, I'm leaning on the commentators here who would say that this would be one of the most disgraceful things to happen for a Roman jailer would be to lose his prisoners. Very likely, he, if he had lost his prisoners, very likely this man would have been put to death. So he feels like the only way to regain his honor is to fall on his sword and kill himself. It's a disgraceful thing. And this is point number three, the surprising conversions of the jailer and his family. Verse, actually, let me, let me just say one other thing. As he's, he's got this sword drawn. He's about to fall on his sword. And I'm draw, draw, drawing on this from another pastor who said, the Philippian jailer at this point was dangling by a thread over the pit of hell as he's got his sword out. He's about to fall on his sword and he certainly is going to go where his sins deserve. He is not covered by the blood of Jesus at this point in time. He's about to take his life. He's about to enter into eternity unprepared. The Apostle Paul sees him probably as a shadowy figure out there. Verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. Don't fall on your sword. We're here. No one has left. Paul cries out through the darkness and saves this man's life. Verse 29, And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What in the world is going on with this Philippian jailer? He's about to take his own life. Paul cries out, don't harm yourself, we're all here. He, he calls for lights, trembles with fear, he falls down before them, brings them out and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What is happening to this Philippian jailer to now ask This incredibly profitable question, one of the most profitable questions you could ever ask. He asked, What must I do to be saved? Well, you see, this man has had a moment of crisis. R.C. Sproul was so helpful here. He said, I think that the fear of judgment upon death is what terrified the jailer, and that he recognized in front of him two men who knew the way of salvation. You see, this man knows that not all is well between him and God, not all is well with his soul. He needs to be reconciled to God. It's as if his conscience has now been awakened in this moment of crisis and his conscience is screaming at him, get right with God. Get right with God. I must get right with God. Again, Sproul says this was one of those life-threatening moments when a man's whole life comes before him. He knew that he was out of reconciliation with his creator. All human beings know in the deepest chamber of their heart that God exists and that they will have to face him at the end of their lives. This man's had this moment of crisis. Now, remember, this man has heard Paul and Silas praying. He's heard them singing hymns to God. He may have heard them singing about the joy of their salvation. He may have heard the testimony of the slave girl who said, these men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. But he knows that they, have, they know the way of salvation. He knows he's out of reconciliation with God, and he trembles with fear. He brings them out. What must I do to be saved? So he's having a moment of crisis. One pastor named Eric Alexander, he told this story. He was a pastor many years ago in Scotland. I think he's still living, but he, I think he was early on in his ministry. He got a call that he needed to go to the hospital and see this man. This man he'd never met before. It was late at night. He went to the hospital. He went to this man's room. The man beckoned him to come by his bedside. And this is how the man began the conversation. He said to me, I have just been told yesterday that I was dying. Here's a man having a moment of crisis. I am dying. I am about to die. He wants to speak to a pastor And he said, someone came to me the other day and I wanted so much to talk to them about the things that really matter. I don't want chit-chat. I'm not really interested in all the things I've lived for because they seem so unimportant. He doesn't care about all he's lived for. They seem so unimportant when he's standing face to face with eternity. And then he said this, will nobody talk to me about God and my soul? Somebody please talk to me about God and my soul. He's facing death and he wants to talk about God and his soul. He's having a moment of crisis, just like the Philippian jailer. And Eric Alexander just said this was a brilliant scholar who lived a full life, and he wanted to know about God and his soul. And I'm sure Eric Alexander was faithful to proclaim the gospel to him. Now, we look at verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. Let me just take the end of that real quick, this you and your household. I believe what they're saying, Paul and Silas, is if the Philippian jailer believes In Jesus, he'll be saved. And if his family believes in Jesus, they too will be saved. I think that's the idea there. But again, notice the first part of their answer. Verse 31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. They don't list the Ten Commandments. They don't give him a lecture on theology. They don't talk about the church. They could talk about those things in time. No, they they told him what was essential. They simply urged faith in Jesus. One pastor said, the simplicity and sufficiency of saving faith. Just put your trust in Jesus, and you're safe and secure for all eternity. Isn't that marvelous? I mean, you just see the the beauty of the gospel for me on display here. Many people would say the Philippian jailer likely lived a very sinful life. He was probably a great sinner, and yet they can say to him, believe. They can urge him to trust in Jesus, and you're, you're saved. We can stand before a child and say, believe in Jesus, and they're saved. We can stand before the worst sinner in the world and say, believe in Jesus, and You're saved. We receive Christ as a hungry person receives bread, as a thirsty person receives water. We receive Christ. We embrace Christ. And again, I was reminded of the wonder of the gospel. And I read this article a few weeks ago about a pastor and his wife. I don't know them at all, but they were on a plane flight from Charlotte uh, to Washington State. And soon after they took off, they experienced engine failure. And he said it began to be pandemonium on this flight. Just a couple of weeks ago. He said people were yelling and screaming. Flight attendants were running up and down, telling them to prepare for a potential crash landing. They were saying, brace, brace, brace. He wasn't sure if he understood all the instructions. And he was feeling like, I could be face-to-face with God very soon. He turned to his wife, and they reminded each other of gospel truth. And then he felt like he needed to say something. So he he spoke to this young woman who was cowering down below, and he began to speak to her about God and to be reconciled with God. And then he raised his voice up so that people around him could hear. And he just presented the gospel for 30 seconds. He gave this gospel presentation. And then he said, nobody scoffed. Nobody laughed on the entire plane. Why? Because they're having a moment of crisis. But as I thought about this, you think that plane could have been filled with high school students and you could stand up and say, believe in Jesus and they're saved. it could have been filled with criminals on death row and we can say, believe in Jesus and they can be saved. The, The beauty of the gospel, the simple, sufficient gospel and simple, sufficient faith in Jesus. And they tell this Philippian jailer to believe, to embrace Christ. And this great sinner, he embraces Christ of whom they spoke. That's a surprising conversion. The Philippian jailer was about to die and enter hell, and yet he is saved. Right here, he embraces Christ. Verse 32 And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. This is powerful. I'm borrowing this from another pastor. So this man embraces Christ. This was midnight when they were praying and singing hymns. This could be 2, 3 in the morning. And now he has embraced Christ. And now he takes Paul and Silas back to his home. Everybody in this house is likely asleep. Why in the world does he wake everybody up to hear this message? What's going on? Well, this pastor said his children must hear the gospel. They could die in their sleep tonight. They must get up. And so here the Philippian jailer, he races back home and he says, everybody up, everybody up. You've got to wake up now. This is time and eternity. This is of utmost significance. You must hear the gospel. He wakes them up. He lines them all up and he says, Paul, Silas, tell them the good news you told me. Because they must be saved. And then... Again, verse 32, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. They began to unpack the gospel, talking about the person and work of Jesus. And one by one, they all embraced Christ. Verse 33, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So an application point here, again borrowed from this pastor. He said, We need to learn to be pleaders for household salvation there's somebody in our household is not a believer. We need to be pleaders with God for household salvation. Maybe it's a, you're a child with one of your parents isn't a believer. We'll plead with God to save them. Parents with children, I hope we're pleading with God to save our children. Or maybe it's a grandparent. Whatever it is, we've got to be pleading with God for household salvation. Verse 34, Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. He rejoiced. Some translations, I think, say filled with joy or something like that. The idea is this is a state of great joy and gladness that's going on here in this early morning meal with all these new converts. This is great joy and gladness. This is the joy of knowing that your sins are forgiven. This is the joy of having new life in Christ. This is the joy of being at peace with God and having eternal life. This is glorious joy, new conversion joy. They're all filled with this great joy. And this meal together, I would say the application here would be, for us as Christians, we should never lose the wonder of what has happened to us. And sometimes we need to be around baby Christians. I think Jerry Edgar would say that. We need to be around baby Christians and to feed off of their joy. So often, new Christians are filled with joy in Jesus, to have that joy rub off on us. John Piper said we should wake up every morning with overflowing thankfulness to God that we believe in Jesus. I would just say, when's the last time we prayed any type of prayer? Of thankfulness that we believe in Jesus. We should be filled with joy in Jesus for the joy of our salvation. Final point Paul's love for the Philippian church, verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Again, Kevin DeYoung, he made me laugh on this. He said, Paul, is something else here. I would not have said this. Paul was a braver man than I am. I would have said, we can leave? We can get out? Wonderful. Okay, I'm just going to sneak right out here at the side door. I would have been tiptoeing out with with Kevin DeYoung. Kevin DeYoung and I would have tiptoed out the side door and been gone. But not Paul. Not Paul. Paul says, you have beaten us publicly, uncondemned. So you're going to take us out publicly. What's going on here with the Apostle Paul? Well, I think that this shows Paul's love for the local church. What do I mean? He has a concern for the validation and vindication of the gospel. One commentator said, I think he had in mind the safety of the church he was to leave behind. He wanted to do everything he could to establish and protect this church, this new church. He was concerned about this infant church to be guarded and not harassed by the citizens of Philippi or the magistrates of Philippi. So he's doing this out of love for the church. He cares about this church. He doesn't want them to be uh, condemned or face unjust persecution. So he has them apologize publicly. But now the question is, he says he's a Roman citizen. He could have said he was a Roman citizen before. He would have avoided the beating altogether. Why does he wait till now to say he's a Roman citizen? He could have said it and got out of the beating. Well, this is Tom Schreiner. This was so good from Schreiner. He said, why didn't Paul and Silas appeal to their Roman citizenship? To avoid being flogged. Perhaps they didn't want to avail themselves of rights that most Philippian Christians didn't have. For most of the Philippians would not be able to appeal to Roman citizenship to avoid punishment. Paul and Silas functioned then as examples for the Philippians of those who face suffering. Isn't that amazing? I would have said, a Roman citizen, I don't want to get beaten, but Paul has a love for the church, so he endures this unjust suffering to show the Philippian Christians, who are not Romans, what it is to suffer well for the gospel. And then after he says he's a Roman citizen, in order to protect the local church, Paul has a great love for this young church. Verse 38, the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Can you imagine the joy at Lydia's house? This little church is now gathered. Paul comes in and he tells them, tells them about the Philippian jailer and his family, all these marvelous conversions, more joy in that house. And some people think some of the prisoners were converted that night. Certainly possible. There's this tremendous joy in this young little church. What a church. You have Lydia, the wealthy merchant and her family, the ex-slave girl, the Philippian jailer and his family, maybe some prisoners, the rich and poor, male and female, all one in Christ. So this little church is established, which would blossom and become one of the strongest of the churches which Paul established. So we have seen surprising conversions. We've seen the slave girl marvelously transformed. We've seen the Philippian jailer and his family wonderfully transformed. We've seen contentment in suffering, immense suffering, and yet they remain content. And we've seen Paul's love the local church, but let me just end again with the Philippian jailer. Verse 29, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So if you're not a Christian, you're here. If you're not a Christian and you're watching online, have you ever asked this most important question, this incredible question? profitable question, what must I do to be saved? I would say, don't wait till a moment of crisis. We're not promised tomorrow. I would say, ask it today. What must I do to be saved? We're all going to have to stand before God one day. And the answer is believe, trust, embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be gloriously saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, What an incredible passage of Scripture. It is wonderful to read about conversions, especially surprising conversions. Thank you for this account of these surprising conversions, Father. I I am so thankful for it. We're thankful for the slave girl who was transformed. We're thankful for the Philippian jailer who almost stepped into hell unprepared, and yet he was marvelously converted. And then his family, he has a concern for his family, and he wakes them all up so that they could hear the gospel. And his family is converted. Oh, Father, I pray that we would, would never lose the wonder what, of what has happened to us as believers, that we would wake up with deep thanksgiving for what has happened to us, for the fact that you have saved us and redeemed us. And Father, thank you for their example, Paul and Silas, of remaining content in suffering. I pray that we would more and more learn the secret of Christian contentment. And Father, I pray that we would have songs to sing in our hearts, and I pray that we would be faithful to teach our children songs to sing And Father, I pray that we would have a deep love for the local church. What a gift the church is. And I pray more and more that we would have a deep love for the local church. I pray even now as we sing that you would be honored by our worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.